If you're not ready to change gear neurologically, this podcast is not for you. These particularly challenging times can actually be seen as a life-giving opportunity for expansion, disguised as an impossible situation. As we grow into our own wholeness through this global great awakening, we are more aware than ever that we are all one. Join with us to raise the collective consciousness, whole and one. You've got this. Here is your host, Sheila Ihirain. Hello and welcome everyone to Whole and One with Sheila. You're tuned to Voice America's Empowerment Channel. And the aim of this show is to introduce you to the people and the ideas that will bring you ever closer to mind-derived health optimization. In this series, we'll teach you how to manage your self-talk, build a healthy relationship with anxiety, and rewrite your narrative. Tell yourself that different story. It's just like doing a bicep curl for your brain. Join us weekly to hear the stories of love, wisdom, and truth that have completely changed the lives of our specially selected guests. And remember, guys, nothing has any meaning except the meaning that you give it. We're joined on today's show by Anne Dobson from Albury, New South Wales in Australia. Anne is an experienced teacher and behaviour management coach. She works with children and families in Albury and has done for 20 years, helping families to build closer and happier relationships with their children, giving parents practical skills and helping them to understand and manage their children's behaviour. Anne, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you, Sheila. It is an absolute pleasure to join you on Whole in One. Thank you very much for inviting me to join you. Oh, you're so welcome. And you began as a high school teacher in 2003. You were teaching for 14 years, during which time you were also developing positive behavior management systems for the school in which you were working. And then you took those systems and trained other schools in, in, this, in the systems that you had devised. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. So, yes, I came, um, I actually came from Sydney and um, came to Albury as a high school teacher and I was teaching English. And um, I remember one of the things that I realised that it didn't really matter what I was teaching. I was always teaching children and people used to say to me, oh, you know, what do you teach? And I said, kids. Um, And that always had a funny response. So, yeah, I mean, Teaching the subject was great. English and literature is definitely a passion. But I came to understand um, children a lot better. And one of the things I learned very early on when I became a year advisor, I became a year advisor in my second year, um, was I was working closely with families and kids, so looking after their well-being. And I realised that a lot of the behaviour problems and what we'd call the tricky kids a lot of their behaviours had nothing to do with their character and everything to do with the circumstances around them. And I could see that a lot of people were missing that point and that really concerned me. I saw kids really getting a rough trot and not getting much opportunity to really be able to express who they were or even be heard or understood, simply being judged for behaviours that were not socially acceptable or considered not socially acceptable by other people. So, yeah, um, I 
my career took a different track after that. I still taught English, but I actually focused a lot more on understanding behaviour. And I had a good relationship with the principals and the deputy principals. And one of them approached me and said, would you be interested in learning about a thing called PBS, Positive Behaviour Supports? I'd never heard of it. And it's actually part of um, PBIS, Positive Behaviour Intervention Systems, which was started um, in the United States. And you can actually go on to pbs.org and pbsmissouri.org. And I was trained under those guys and applied it in the school that I worked in, Andy. It was a revelation. Oh, it was incredible. Instead of reacting to kids' behaviours after they had behaved and responding with all kinds of things, you know, positive or negative, this was totally different. It actually aimed to prevent the behaviour happening in the first place. And the thing that struck me was the way it was done was all through communication. Now, being an English teacher you know, who can parse sentences and tell you what, you know, the predicate and the verb is and <laughs> all of that. I got it. I got it with communication and I thought, right, the way we speak to kids, the language we use, the number of words we use, yes, um, the way we communicate visually as well as verbally, all of those things had an impact. And what was really exciting was I would put that into practice. Um, so everything I learnt... And I taught other schools. I ended up teaching about 30 other schools in the Riverina district, which is a large area in the bottom part of New South Wales. Um, what, are, what was really exciting is when I actually applied it myself in my own classroom practice, it worked wonders. And people would say to me, how do you do this? How do you get kids eating out of the palm of your hand? And um, I wasn't, you know, it wasn't like being a soft touch. It was, in fact was regarded that, you know, being positive was, you know, you were being a softie. It had nothing to do with that. It had everything to do with positive in the mathematical sense, which was amazing. Um, the, when I say positive in the mathematical sense, what I mean is I actually talk about this in my course. Um, very often, if you look at a mathematical number, anything greater than zero is, is a positive number. So if you were to say, you know, show me three fingers, positive three fingers, anyone could show you three fingers. They could wiggle them around and they can move them around. But if I was to say, show me minus three figures, three fingers, negative, a negative number, you can't do that. You can do zero. I do this a lot when I train people. Um, show me three fingers, show me, show me three negative fingers, and they go, huh? They can only show me zero. You get confused. You don't know what to do. Think about that in language. If you said to a kid, don't run, you're not actually telling them what you want them to do. So you could say to a kid, don't run, and they might hop. And you're going, I told you not to do that. Well, you told me not to run. Or um, they could crawl or they could do, you know, the um, Ministry of Silly Walks. <laughs> but the problem with that is it's using negative language, saying no, don't and stop. But it's negative in the, in the mathematical sense because you're not actually telling them what to do and they don't know what to do. So you get all these people complaining, oh, they haven't done what I've told them to do. And I would come back to people and say, because you haven't actually told them what it is. If you were to say walk, 
they would know precisely what to do. And so, yeah, I realised that a lot of behaviour management strategies were all about reactions and not understanding what was going on with the behaviour. And also, um, effective behaviour management had more to do with the way you communicated before the event. So it was all preventative. So then, yeah, (laughs) my career took off. And, of course, while I was teaching schools, I discovered there was one massive missing link. Nobody was training the parents. So if you've got tricky kids um, and they end up at the principal's office, what do they eventually do? They eventually call the parent saying, we don't know what to do with them anymore. Send the kid home and the parent goes, well, what do I do? Because I don't have the training. I've got training in other things. I'm experienced and skilled in other things. And yet parents know their child better than anyone else. But they're only reverting back to old school behaviour management because that's what their parents did and that's all they know. Sure. So I realised there was a massive gap. So I actually left teaching and decided to build my own business, filling in that gap and actually helping parents by giving them those positive behaviour skills that I had used for years that I knew worked and teaching them the same way I taught teachers. And it's producing amazing results. It's very, very cool. I get a lot of parents really happy going, how did you do that? I know. And giving them just that sense of somewhere to go, somewhere to dump their troubles with an expert Mm. who knew how to guide them. Because if you wanted to be Mm. restorative for everybody, you need some language and you need a steer. So, Anne, how did that, so how did that shape up? You, You left teaching and opened your business or had you begun your business first? Were you um, kind of sidestepping both for a little while? Well, um, there was a bit of sidestepping on both for a little while. Um, But the demand was so great, I decided to leave teaching and I really just incorporated what I knew from when I was training teachers um, and modified it, I guess you could say, into very structured short lessons that parents can access online that covered, you know, the 12 key points of um, how you manage a child's behaviour. So it's really three three steps. First one is how you communicate with your child. What's the words you use? Um, you know, if you don't say don't, what do you say instead? So there's that. The other thing is we give kids far too many words Um, And there's plenty of research that will tell you that in our short-term or our working memory, we can only process three to five things at once. So that's why you read all the experts that say, keep your expectations into three to five words. So I talk about all that. And the other thing is a lot of people will just say what they want the child to do, but anything that you say will stay in your head for about 30 seconds and then it's gone. So if you don't support your child visually with signs or pictures or things like that, we've got traffic signs and, you know, signs telling us which way to go and stop and give way and all of that, we can do the same with kids. So the language we use is the first step. And that's great if you've got positive language. But the next thing is, well, if you've got, if you told a child that some particular behaviour you want them to do, you've got an idea in your mind what you want them to do, but they're not mind readers. So you need to support the child so they can actually do the behaviour that you want. So 
simply showing them what you mean. You know, when I sit on a chair, I sit down with my feet on the floor, flat on the floor. Can you do that? Instead of something very vague and general like sit properly. Sure. Um, so, and then things like, you know, if you kids have got a million things on their minds, we've all got a million things on their minds, don't we all love a reminder? So, reminding kids, giving them enough take-up time. Kids need time to process. Something as simple as a structured routine, all of those things support a child to actually help them with doing the behaviour you want them to do. That's the second stage. That's the support stage. And the third one I've learned is feedback. Feedback's interesting. Very often kids only get feedback about their behaviour when they get it wrong. We very rarely tell kids when they've got it right, and yet the research will tell you if you give a kid positive feedback, they're more likely to do it, whatever it is you've taught them, again. And feedback doesn't have to be reliant on what a kid has done. I've even got a whole section that I talk about in my course about how you acknowledge a child for who they are. I was only reading some research today, actually, on um, emotionally, emotional intelligence, how kids are constantly seeking eye contact um, with their parents and their emotional well-being will be based on how their parents respond and repeatedly respond. So, yeah, when a kid's sort of looking for attention, best thing you can do is actually give it to them. You're not mollycoddling them. And then um, the other thing is people have misunderstandings about punishment. They sort of go, oh, you know, people need consequences. And I go, yeah. The other thing they also say is people, kids need discipline. And I go, well, if you know what discipline means, discipline means that you teach someone, then, yeah, I'll agree with you. But if you think kids need consequences, you don't have to give them. There are always consequences to behaviour. But do they learn from it? The problem with punishment is kids never actually get taught what the replacement behaviour is. They simply get told that what they've done is bad. And they'll do things like try to avoid it, um, but that's not learning what the replacement behaviour is. So there are better things that you can do sure. to punish them. I hear things like, you know, a kid needs a good kick up the bum and all that and go, no, that's not going to work. No, it's <laughs> not. And, and then obviously, you know, there was a paradigm when we would have all thought that we were good parents if we gave our children some time out. So I'm, I'm imagining that you have a very structured way of doing something like that rather than idly just the bottom step, that awful lengthy period of time in which they don't even know mm. what to think about because they hate being there, but yeah. they don't have the maturity to know how to make their way back in. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, putting a kid in time out really only gives the parent a break and doesn't actually teach the child anything. And the other thing it does is it actually fractures the relationship between the parent and the child. Um, you know, if you've got a child, the thing about behaviour is it is all communication. If your child is communicating a need and you're not responding to that and you're actually removing them from the situation, you're actually causing devastating damage. And a lot of people, I have this conversation with parents all the time um, where they sort of say, oh, you know, am I molly coddling them? Am I, you know, spoiling them by giving them the attention they need? And I go, no, I actually talk about feed the need. Um, there was a, a study done actually last year, 2020, during the COVID crisis when everyone was isolating and the impact of social isolation. And they did MRI studies. 
And what they found was the um, parts of the brain that were stimulated for the need for social interaction were pretty much the same as those that were stimulated when you need to eat. So food is necessary for survival and that impulse when you're hungry is very hard to resist. Well, it's the same with the need for interaction. So if you've got a child who's starving for attention, then my best advice is to feed the need. The need, absolutely. Um, And the other thing also is it's the same when your child is hungry. When you feed them, they're not going to pester you anymore because they're not hungry. They're satisfied. They've got what they need. They go off and do their own thing. And then they might come back another time and need some more food. It's the same with ourselves. We need human interaction. Um, And so I get some parents who say, oh, look, I haven't got time to, you know, give them 100% attention all the time. And I go, you don't have to. No. Something as simple as just sitting down and playing with them. Sure. You know, get down in the sand pit, get down and play with the Lego and the blocks and listen to what your child is telling you through their creative play will reveal so much. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a long time. 15 minutes will be enough. It's the same as it takes 15 minutes to probably eat a meal. Absolutely. And yet that's enough to satisfy you. So things like that, understanding that behaviour is all about communication and support and then feedback. Feedback can make a massive difference in that kids. That is so insightful, so insightful. And grabbing those few minutes when you can to co-regulate with your child, to help your child to co-regulate so that they can self-regulate at a later point. They need to have that opportunity with you. Even if you don't have that very structured 15 minutes that you reference, Anne, which is not a long time in the course of a day, but sometimes when people are so busy, it's hard to diary that. And and you nearly would Mm -hmm. nowadays because we are so busy. So if we get an opportunity to be peeling the potatoes for dinner and somebody asks us a question mm. that we realize a passing answer won't suffice just to take even mm. a couple of minutes to get into their model of reality and help yep. them to co-regulate so that they know how to self-regulate to some extent in that moment and definitely later where it's the building blocks, isn't it? At that early stage between the parent and the child, that dyad is so important for it how is. balanced they feel later in life. Yeah, interesting that you actually talk about the peeling the potatoes because um, in um, one of my lessons, I actually talk about the five levels of attention and the best attention you can give your child is level one or level two. And that's not even my work. That's Dr. Christopher Green, who's an Australian child um, paediatrician, not a child psychologist, but he's a paediatrician. And he wrote Um, this book toddler taming in the 80s and it's been re-released and re-released and updated all the time he talks about the five levels of attention what you've described is actually level two where you're busy with things but you're still interacting with your child level one is the highest quality where you are down on their same level on the ground well i at eye level interacting listening to them eye contact and that has a profound effect but sometimes that's just not practical but level two is fine um, where you're doing things, but you're still looking at them and paying attention. And yes, that is co-regulation because a lot of people say, oh, I want the kids to learn self-regulation as they're screaming at me. And I'm going, well, the first thing you need to do is regulate yourself. Now, again, that's not even my work. That's Dr. Mona Della Hook in Beyond Behaviours um, and Stephen Porges' um, polyvagal theory. Sure. 
things like that um, can make a massive difference. You don't need elaborate and structured behaviour therapies. You know, behaviour support plans have their place, but they're not necessary for every child. Simply things like learning to communicate and interact with kids makes the most difference and plenty of research will back that up too. Sure. And I love the idea of the communication being extremely important, but supporting that then with a visual or a model. So modeling the behavior that you desire, depending on their age, it will be age appropriate insofar as what is the modeling and to what extent you model. I'm actually tempted to think that that would work in all of our relationships, adults included. Every in all of the variations of how we relate to other people, sometimes you need to be a little bit more clear in that which you're yes. expressing as a desire of yours, because otherwise you are, ex- it's nearly setting somebody up for a fall. Because if they don't understand what yep. you mean, they're likely not to satisfy your expectation. And it's, it's in that sort of reward prediction error that the disappointment can happen and yep. then fallout can happen. So, can you give us That's an exactly example? Right of how that might happen. So I can imagine mums and dads the world over listening to this and thinking, oh my goodness, this is amazing. This is gold dust when it comes to knowing how to manage my children. So if a child, for example, Anne, at the age of four or five, let's say that very busy mm-hmm. young time where they, when they need you, they need you now, you know, and it's life threatening and mm-hmm. dangerous and black and white and catastrophic and, and you're very busy. And it's not even just that you're not deciding to give them the time you perhaps have dinner all at the ready and it would be nearly yep. dangerous to, to turn your attention away. What type of communication can you do with your child? Will intonation suffice to, to catch their Oh, attention? there's a number of things. Yeah, intonation, of course. Eye contact is another. Of course, being able to you, – you would need to build up a relationship with your child, which, of course, parents do – But in order for them to trust that, you know, if you're not able to talk to them straight away, that you will at a different stage. Um, I actually use time really um, effectively with this. And I've also seen a child psychologist do this with his own child, which was brilliant. Um, There was this particular child psychologist was talking with colleagues at a party. His um, daughter was jumping on the trampoline and she said, Daddy, come and play with me. And he said, I've got to talk to these people right now, but I will come and jump on the trampoline with you in 15 minutes. He got his smartphone, set the time of 15 minutes and gave her the phone. And then he said, as soon as that timer goes off, you come and get me and I will go and jump on the trampoline. And so that's exactly what happened. And when um, she came, he said to his colleagues, I've made a promise to my daughter, which I will keep and I'm going to leave you now. Now, I had given that advice to a lot of parents. I've done it myself. I've done it with my own child. And if children know what's coming and what to expect, they will respond. But you need to build that trust. It's so much more effective to say, I will come in 15 minutes, here's the timer, and you keep that promise than saying, I'm coming in a minute or I'll come soon or I'll talk to you soon because soon never comes and children don't know how long that is. So that's how I'd handle that situation. That's amazing. I've done it plenty of times. Because uncertainty. And again, it's a visual. (laughs) Of course it is. And our brains are pattern matching agents. So we need, we, Mm. as you say, we need to practice. It's it's a practice, not a mandate, because if we know from past experience that when daddy says that daddy will do that, then we're not in a space Mm. of uncertainty. And our brains don't like uncertainty. So there's another regulating technique that you've handed over to your child very passively. 
Yes, yeah. In fact, it's interesting that you talk about that certainty because one of the things when I deal with my clients, because I do coaching and I do consulting, the very first thing I do is actually start developing household routines. They call me the routine queen. <laughs> Can you believe that? It's like, a great oh, title. Everybody, Routine what? queen. Oh, this is wonderful. But that's what we need. Tell us. Give us the routines. Yeah, that we okay. Bring into so what homes. I do... Yeah, there's four key routines that it, pretty much every household with families and children have. First one is the morning routine, and they're actually usually centered around mealtimes. But the first one's the morning routine where you get up and everyone's madly getting out the door to go to work and school. And there are certain things that you will have to do. You'll have to get up, you'll have to have a shower, you'll have to get dressed, you'll have to brush your teeth, you'll have to have breakfast. And there's a whole series of steps with preparing the breakfast, eating the breakfast, clearing it away for young children, the skill of eating the breakfast. Then if you're going to school, depending on um, where your school is um, in Australia, children have to bring their own lunch. So you've got to make the lunch and there's all the steps of that. Then you've got to actually put it in the bag and then you've got to bring all your other stuff and you've got to get out the door on time. That's a hell of a lot for a kid to think about. And if you've got, if you haven't got any structures in place to support them, it can turn into chaos. Then when they come home, that's the second routine. That one is interesting because kids have held it together all day. And then in Australia, we call it the four o'clock meltdown, um, where kids have held it together, go back into their home, which is a safe place and they can be themselves. And they will have a meltdown where they get crump, grumpy or tired or cranky or whatever. And if you give them the structure of um, three things, um, a break, a snack and a chat, and then chores or homework, and put them in certain times, honouring what the child needs, but also setting expectations about homework. If they know what is it, it's coming, and you can break it up, that's, that regulates them. And then the, the third one is the dinner time routine. And you can do dinner time routines even with shift work. My husband was a shift worker for 20 years. We did all that. Um, there's a great rule that we have no one eats alone. You can have dessert together. And then the last one, very important, is the bedtime routine. Now, those sort of routines, because of the regularity and the certainty, that certainty removes all stress with children clears their brain, frees up their mind so that their working memory is open to actually learn, think clearly, puts them in that um, neutral regulated zone that Dr. Stephen Paul just talks about in polyvagal theory. And simple things like that is the first thing I start with. That's when I do my coaching or my consulting. And I also talk about it in my lesson, uh, lesson number eight in support about routines that can have a powerful effect on kids. That certainty, knowing um, that there's a reliable outcome, that they know what's coming, also highlights the reliability of their parents and that is vital Absolutely. for a child's well-being. Um, all of those things can make problem behaviours evaporate without even having to do the interventions. Of course. You don't need necessarily star charts or steps or any of that stuff. Simply communicate with the child, make it clear, show them that you are consistent and that will be enough impact and it works and it works quickly. Oh, I can imagine. So picking them up before they fall as such and from your perspective as an adult, but 
from their perspective, giving them a clear idea of what's coming next so they can rise to that. They, they, they like children. Yes. It's not good to keep the bar low. Children like you to raise the bar for them. They like to jump higher, but they like mm. to know what they're jumping towards and they like to know what the reward will be. And to some extent, then we're very much helping them to self-regulate when we get them to motivate themselves to do their best so that they do please their parents because in so doing, they'll, they'll be really happy themselves. So it's a win-win, definitely a win-win. Oh, would, it's a win-win for everyone. Mm. Would you, so the communication support and feedback aspect of that, Anne, would you consider it necessary or wise or useful to do um, a visual diary, just something very brief? I know people are busy and they don't have time to sit and have, you know, a boardroom style meeting with their family. Although, there would be a lot to be said for it. You know, meeting times mm. on a weekly or a monthly basis would serve everybody's needs. But would it be wise to set out a little visual of the, those daily routines that you reference? Oh, always, always. And again, that's something um, in Lesson 8 of support. I actually have templates on all of those routines. And um, when I do the coaching, I actually work with parents to develop those and there's so many resources available out there. There's a product actually that is great. It's an Australian product. I think it's called What Wall. And um, it's a big glass panel with the seven days of the week. And you write on glass and glass pens. So it's, in, it's very stylish and attractive. Um, and it's designed so the kids can actually use it as well. I know a family that's actually got six kids. Um, the eldest is 18 and the youngest is still nursing with mum. And so when it comes to routines, mum will actually feed the baby early in the morning. She will write down what's happening for the day because it's a very chaotic um, uh, life. And the second eldest child, who's 12, he writes it up on the what wall. So that gives him a sense of responsibility, but it also gives all the kids certainty so they know what's coming for the day, who's going to footy, Who's taking them? Is it dad or is it mum? Who's, um, who's cooking dinner that night? All these things. And that can calm down um, a, a family household. That visual, this is what's happening, can make a massive difference. So, yeah, definitely I would do that. Oh, my goodness. Such wisdom in all of that. And I, I know everybody's going to be going online to buy into those courses. I, I actually, <laughs> I'm a little bit disappointed that I have my children reared at this stage. I'd love to attempt it again with all of that wisdom in my pocket. How did you go from teaching to developing these positive behavior management systems? How, where did you get such wisdom? It can't all be learned. Oh, well, to, to be honest, my greatest teacher was my son. My son, David, um, who is now 23, um, our David was born deaf. And so we had to completely reassess our understanding and our expectations of um, raising a child. We had to learn sign language. Um, so we learned Australian sign language, Auslan, which is actually very similar to Irish sign language and British sign language. Um, American sign language is actually based on French sign language. So it's a totally different language. So we learned the culture of um, the deaf community as well. And that taught me heaps. And I, that I think also resonated with me as a teacher and then as a behaviour therapist. Very often, behaviour therapies or interventions are about making the child conform to the dominant society. And that is not honouring 
who the child is. And so when we started with David, there was an expectation among a lot of professionals saying, you have to make him speak. Now, with my background in language and literacy, I said, speaking is not communication. You can communicate in many different ways that do not have to be spoken. And as I learned Auslan, I recognised how visual and demonstrative the language was. So I was showing what I meant. I remember having this conversation with David in the shower when he was little. He asked me, how was he born? And so I could tell him um, and demonstrate it visually using sign language exactly how he was born. Now, that was so much better than just using words. Of course. And he still remembers that conversation. Um, I thought that was quite powerful. And the other thing was also meeting the child at his level. David taught me an awful lot about perspective. Now, this is something we need to be aware of with children. We often put interventions in place or try to change children's behaviour from our perspective, without considering the child's perspective. Um, Very often when I talk to people, they will say, um, when I ask them to describe the behaviours, they will actually tell me more about how their child's behaviour makes them feel. They're annoying, they're irritating. I'm going, that's telling me what you think of the behaviour. Tell me what the behaviour is, because I'm interested in what the child's communicating. And I learned that from David. So... um, Yeah, I learned that language and communication reflects a culture, reflects an attitude and a perspective. And so the way we communicate with our children can have a massive impact on their well-being and their behavioural outcomes. And communication is a two-way street. It's not all about you talking to them. It's actually about them talking to you and you listening. There's that Victorian statement um, from decades or centuries ago, you know, children should be seen and not heard. I'm thinking we are actually seeing the impact of children not being heard in terms of, you know, they're expected to be silent because that's easier for the adults to deal with, but not heard as in not acknowledged. And so we have so many people who are adults who were never heard as children who were never acknowledged as children and struggle with identity issues, um, with mental health issues, because they were not heard. And you need to really make sure that you do listen to the child. There's some amazing therapies out there at the moment, child's, um, sorry, play therapy. Play therapy is cool. You sit there and you're sitting on the ground on, in the sand pit or you're playing with, you know, plastic tigers and lions, but you are listening to the child. The child directs the play. You become the character. They decide, not the other way around. You don't ask questions about, you know, what colours the frog or whatever. You already know that question. They will tell you and, oh, it will reveal so much because you're listening to the child. And that's another thing I learned about um, behaviour as well. And again, I learned that from David. He was able to express a lot of uh, uh, sign language is tactile as well. A lot of expressions that are used actually have to do with experience that is felt. 
So the sign for scared, for example, reflects the heart beating. Um, and deaf people will actually have a better understanding of a sense of feel and touch and smell. Sure. A lot of people think, oh, you know, deaf people will see better. Yes, they do. But they also smell better yes. and they also feel better. My son can tell me when I walk into the house because he feels the air pressure change the minute I open the door. Wow. Sure. That is insightful. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, when Dave uh, was born and he taught me a different way of looking at the world and he taught me that by looking at the world through his eyes. And if we can do that with our children, we will learn so much. Um, you're an inspiration, honestly. And I'm moved at so many levels. I, I need to keep myself on track so that I don't just lose myself in the learning space. And I know everybody's going to be moved because, you know, we don't, I, I, I almost feel like saying sorry on behalf of all the parents who didn't, myself included, who therefore didn't get it right. And we do our best with the wisdom and knowledge we have at the time. Of course. But, but as you're explaining it, you know, there is room for so much more by just doing it differently. It's working smarter, not harder with our kids and by just turning up for them, listening. Yes, just by turning up for them and listening. Mm. And some people hearing. And hearing, yeah, so children are heard. I do think some parents feel that they have to do something about the behaviour or the do something with their children. And we fill up their lives with so much activities and so much busy stuff that we don't actually give them space to explore, to be themselves. And we tend to direct a lot of their action, which concerns me. So giving them, you know, an opportunity to draw, you know, really good child psychologists will allow a child to simply draw. And they will tell you what they're doing and why. So, you know, a child, for example, may draw something in pink because they like the colour. <laughs> um, and one child who revealed so much about his understanding of the earth had drawn the sun black because it was an eclipse because he was interested in astronomy and cool stuff like that. Um, and... One of the things I actually learned, which is fascinating, was about children who had come to terms with a school massacre. And what they were doing was they were actually recreating the massacre, which shocked the parents. And the, and the teachers going, oh, we can't do that. We can't do that. But the school counsellors and the psychologists were very astute. And they said, no, let's see what they do. What they were doing was they were replaying it over and over again in their minds in a safe environment because they were playing and when they were doing that, they were refiring their neural patterns so they could come to terms with the actual trauma. Now, I don't, I'm not a neurologist, but I do a lot of reading and research about it. But what I found was interesting was how children know how to get what they need. Yeah. And if we only allow them to do that instead of putting our interpretation on it, that can change a lot of things. Sure. Autistic but, children are very good at getting what they need. They I are, really find that, yeah, because, yeah, they're very sensory. And, you know, you spoke about, when we chatted before, Anne, you spoke about um, the whole area of special needs and special needs education and how there's mm. a certain language around that that you would prefer was used, that it's more respectful to people that are not neurotypical or, you know, actually... 
you know, I know that you were particularly concerned about the use of special within special needs education. Oh, yes. I mean, I've actually worked as a special ed teacher. I've worked in special schools and all of that. And special was meant to be, was kindly meant, and there's a lot of this, there's a lot of actions that are kindly meant. Special, particularly in Australia, has a, is like a euphemism. It's a derogatory term now that suggests that you're, um, it actually equates to something that is less than, it implies disability. I don't even like the word disability. The word disability is an ableist perspective. Um, there's a story I like to talk about in, um, you know, when you go to a bar and you, uh, you're on one side of the bar in a pub and the other person's at the bar ordering the drink for you, try yelling across the, the pub. Well, not a problem for us. My husband and I, my husband um, will sign to me. Um, you know, they haven't got steak, they've only got chicken. What do you want? Oh, yeah, I'll have chicken, but I'll have the mushroom sauce. All in sign across a crowded room. Now I ask you, who's got the disability now? It's well a different done. perspective. Well done. So, yeah, I, I, um, I think people, I know, for example, deaf people like to be identified as deaf with a capital D. Autistic people like to be known as autistic with a capital A. It's not a less than, um, it is simply a way of being and a way of seeing. Dis um, deaf people don't consider themselves disabled because they're not. They don't apply for the deaf, uh, the dis disabled Olympics. They have their own deaf Olympics. And I know plenty of people who are deaf who competed in mainstream um, Olympics um, with adjustments. I know there was a um, a swimming champion, and instead of setting off the um, the gun, they would just flash a light. That's all he needed. That's not a disability. Not at all. Um, and when I the number of autistic children that I work with, and I see what they can do, wow, mind blowing. I've seen eight year olds who know how to manipulate the stock market. I've seen ten year olds who can engineer and build bridges in their own backyard, blows my mind, and these kids get categorised as being less than. <laughs> no. no um, the only deficit is in the attitude towards them. It's, it's mind-blowing when you actually open your mind and consider the child's perspective and listen to what they're telling you. They reveal so much. Children are surprisingly resilient. Um, it's um, remembering, you know, what their brain structure is like. You will never be as smart again in your life as you are at the age of three when all the synapses are firing, Absolutely. Um, even at the age of seven. Um, and the resilience and the, the things that kids can observe. If we only listen to them, we would learn so much. Um, you know, when I'm dealing with, with parents and they want to change a child's behaviour, one of the first things I look at is, is say, is that a problem? Um, you know, I've got, you had one person sort of saying, oh, well, this child flaps. And I'm going, so? <laughs> Why is this a problem? Um, because it annoys the parent. Well, deal with it. Yeah. Um, it's only when it becomes something that is socially unacceptable that involves hurting other people that we might need to consider sure. changing the behaviour. 
But it's we need to look at first, what's the child's behaviour expressing? What are they trying to tell us? That is so important. What are they trying to tell us? But I'm, I'm concerned as well for the parents that would say that to you, Anne, and they would need then your advocacy for themselves as well, because I'm sure there are parents who would express that to you out of pure love for their child, not even that they have an intolerance oh, it of it. They don't mm. want their child to be treated differently, lest they would be hurt. So I suppose they're looking for oh, yeah. that program that you have, that training mm. program to help them to understand so that they can be kind of parent their children from a stronger attachment type and a more secure attachment type themselves and yeah, un- yeah. understand the behavior to advocate for their own child, I suppose, from a greater place of confidence. Oh, you're absolutely right, Sheila. Absolutely right. In fact, that was the whole reason why I created the course Great Expectations, um, because our behaviour is based on our expectations, you know, behaviour management. But there was a a study that was done on 2017 by the Zero to Three Foundation in the US. And what it did was surveyed parents who said 90% of them feel judged. They feel judged about the way they manage their child's behaviour by two categories, strangers in public and by other family members. And they will actually adjust their behaviour strategies to become more punitive in the presence of these people to appease them. That's not helping your child. So I created great expectations so that I would empower parents so that they know their child, give them the tools that they need so they were confident that what they were doing was the right thing for their child. There is no one size fits all, but there are clear steps. And an empowered parent is a more confident parent and a more confident parent has a better relationship with their child. And that's why I created the um, the Great Expectations course and broke it down into three modules and 12 lessons. The Amazing. best part is when you see it work. Uh, so, and this is available online now and anybody anywhere yes. can contact you and your contact will on LinkedIn. And do you want to tell us all of the platforms on which we can access your courses yes. and contact you directly? Yes. Um, well, there's my website, which is effectivebehaviourmanagement.com.au. Behavioural mention has the U in it. Yes, um, right. I'm going to put all this in the show notes as well. So anybody yeah. um, will be able to double check the show notes yeah, so you'll see that the courses is on there and they can um, simply register straight away. There's three options of how you want to pay for it. You can also find me on LinkedIn, um, Ann Dobson or Effective Behaviour Management. You'll find me on Facebook um, under Effective Behaviour Management and I'm also there on LinkedIn. Oh, sorry, LinkedIn, I've said Instagram, yeah. um, all Effective Behaviour Management. I chose that name very carefully because... You need things that are going to work, that are going to have an effect. Yes. Uh, and effect starts with EB, by the way. So, yeah, that's where you'll find me. I put articles up on LinkedIn and I've got blogs on my um, page as well. I'm always posting things. And, of course, if you go and register for the Great Expectations course, um, I have a private Facebook group as well where people who've enrolled get to interact and talk with each other and I'm on there as well and I do webinars and things like that so that you've got ongoing support all the time. It's not just sort of turning up and doing the course and hoping for the best. There's always that ongoing support. You need that as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Repetition affording emphasis, it's for sure. Gosh, and I hope you can cope with the influx because I can imagine everybody everywhere that's rearing young children (laughs) is going to want to get on there and learn how to do it correctly because we all have 
that intention, that dearest and deepest desire in our hearts to do it correctly for our children. But we, we, but we don't, you know, I, try as we might. Only because we, we, people haven't been given the skills. Sure. Yeah, parents sure. haven't been given the skills. And so that's why I created what I did. So parents do get the skills. And the other thing is, if we can raise our children better and manage their behaviour better by understanding them, we create a better world. We create a better society. And that's really what my vision is, that we overcome some of the issues that we're having to deal with now about misunderstandings and miscommunications and some serious mental health issues. And instead, we create a much better, more holistic world in our children. The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. So let's look at how we rock that cradle. Oh, and you're amazing. So what about the people now listening that feel they have come through um, a family environment and a school environment that maybe didn't serve them very well. Perhaps they feel a little bit broken by the lack of parent-child dyad or uh, the lack of Mm. um, attention to their particular needs when they were in school. So in their teens, in their early 20s, further on into, you know, their 30s and 40s, working Mm. in their you know, maybe rearing their own families now. What do you feel about the concept of reparenting self? So can people adjust and close that gap as adults? Oh, yes. Oh, I definitely think so. Um, And it comes from a better understanding of yourself. And again, it goes back to the, um, the course Great Expectations. What it does is it actually teaches you that you already have the tools so it's just how to actually put them in place. It's, um, it's showing you what the toolbox is and then how to use it. But yes, reparenting, absolutely. Yes, you can. And I know plenty of people who've been able to do that successfully and raise families and their children very, very successfully from some very traumatic backgrounds. Absolutely. Uh, trauma is not, not a life sentence. It's not, um, not something, it's something that happened, but it's not something that is you. Exactly. And there can be post-trauma development and growth as well. You know, we talk oh, about yes. post-traumatic stress syndrome and so that we know about that and, and it needs mm. deconditioning and people need a lot of help to build themselves up. And with the right help, they absolutely can. And a lot of people can self-regulate out of those traumatic experiences to grow and develop into better versions of themselves. And there doesn't have to be such a, hard, a sense of hard work about it. Um, again, no, not at all. Again, it's, an, it's like you say, it's all about an attitude and it's about how mm. you turn up at the situation. So when people, I suppose, Anne, are listening to this and desiring that, that, that skill set, which they can go online now and get, I think there's going to be a lot of value in it for the adults themselves as people. Oh, and yes. As, mm. you know, as children of that growing up scenario themselves, because none of us came up through that perfect childhood you know none of us came up through a childhood and an education system which totally embraced us and totally met all of our needs so as we try and do this for our little children as parents and educators we're very much doing a little bit of inner child work in a very positive way ourselves. oh yes yes definitely I think one of the things that's most rewarding for me is when I see the look of relief on parents faces they're so much more relaxed and it can happen within a few short weeks, that I find is really, really rewarding. And the relationship improves between the parent and the child. It's the best, the best reward I can 
possibly have. It makes such a difference. Our children are our future. They are our greatest investment. And um, improving that relationship can make such a difference. Absolutely, because they're not just, children are not just inheriting the world, they're shaping it for us. And everything that we can do to help them benefits them, but benefits us as individuals. And then, as you say, benefits the world at large. So, um, and uh, can I chat with you briefly about um, just in, mm-hmm. in light of the that lovely inclusiveness that you have and all of the unique and jobs and language um, that you have built to surround <laughs> that and you're willing to share so generously with us. Will you tell me about the cafe that you love to attend? I was very engaged by this idea. Oh. Oh, yes, you definitely have to try this place. This is great. This is called the Purple Chicken. It's run by an artist called Jen Tate, and I can send you the link so that you've got it in the show notes. Um, And she has a child who is autistic, and she wanted to create an inclusive world for her son, and so she started by building a cafe. And what they do is they employ a whole range of people with a whole range of abilities. And so you've got people with um, physical, uh, who need physical supports. You've got people who need hearing supports. You've got people with different um, intellectual abilities. And um, you've got what we'd call the neurotypicals and they all work together. And it's created in such a way that the disability, for want of a better term, becomes irrelevant. It doesn't matter. It's not important because you go in, you get food served, it's beautiful, good coffee and all of that, and you're going into a, you know, a mainstream cafe. But it's a completely inclusive environment because um, everyone with all abilities, disabilities or non-disabilities, I really don't like the term disability, um, works there build skills, um, people with disabilities do get employed into mainstream, they build up their hospitality skills. And it has grown. It has turned into Blue Goose, um, which is a disability support coordination centre. And also another branch now is called the Red Bantam. And the Red Bantam is um, an employment skills program that goes beyond hospitality. So we're talking about technology, um, art, um, electronics. Um, oh, I can't remember. There's a whole lot of them. Um, so a whole lot of different technical skills. These people often find that they get missed out because of people's perceptions of their inability. Um, purple chicken. Blue Goose and Red Bantam challenge all of that and they successfully integrate people with a whole range of abilities into the community in such a way that you wouldn't notice. Of course. And that's what inclusivity is and it honours the abilities of everyone. That's the world I wanted to create for my son too. Oh, here, here. That is just amazing. And it's all the brainchild of that, that lady. She's an artist, you say. Is her work... Yeah, Jen um, Tate. Can her work be seen online as well? Does she sell her work online, her own arts and crafts? Does she, does she sell yeah, out she of the cafe as well? Yeah. Oh, just, you walk into the cafe and the walls are covered in it. Oh, my goodness. And her, she uses an impressionistic style. It's beautiful stuff. So, yeah, her, her, it's gorgeous. Uh, there's paintings of purple chickens everywhere, but it's beautiful, beautiful quality art. When you walk into the cafe, all the tables are done with replicas of famous artworks. So you've got Van Gogh's self-portrait, you've got a Sidney Nolan, 
You've got um, Sydney Nolan's Australian artist with Ned Kelly. You've got Monet's Garden. You've got Gauguin's um, ballet dancers. Um, you've got a long table with Dali, Salvador Dali, and every single um, table has a purple chicken hidden away somewhere in it. Oh, you've got the screen, you know, the, the painting, the screen. It's, yeah, and every time she gets a new table, she just paints another one. And oh, amazing. it's a brilliant place. It's a fantastic cafe, but I love the philosophy. And she's, um, she's a real warrior, a real fierce advocate for the rights of all. She doesn't just talk about ability. She talks about the rights of women, talks about the rights of transgender, you name it. She's all about it. She's incredible. Well, so are you. She has met her sister in you. And whilst you're advocating so kindly and generously for her, it is only because you recognize those wonderful skills and talents in your own beautiful self as well. And it has been an absolute pleasure. I'm, I'm enthralled, as you know, because when we chatted the last time, I was so engaged at so many levels, I didn't even know what we could focus on and get through in just the hour. We might chat again. And before we go, I love to ask my guests what whole and one means to them. I wonder, have you had a chance to have a little think about what whole and one Oh, means? yeah. The English teacher in me looked up the origins of the word and whole um, is, an, is an old English word and it means basically complete, um, healthy um, and well and entire. One is even older. It's proto-Indo-European. So it's like the origins of European languages, um, including Gaelic. And it simply means unique, one-like. So it's not just the digit. So what I see that is, um, so is basically self-fulfillment. Whole in one is you are whole and you are yourself. And by being yourself, you are whole. And I believe that with everyone. We all have our uniqueness. And in being unique, that's what makes us whole. And if we can see that in everyone as well as ourselves, we have the way of making the whole world whole and one. So, yeah, I, I like to acknowledge the uniqueness in all. And, of course, the greeting Namaste does that. So that's how I see whole and one. Oh, and thank you so much. I, I'm delighted and honoured that that's what you think it is because that's, that echoes exactly what I think myself. So um, as we approach the end of the show, it remains only to thank you um, on everybody's behalf, that has been so informative. Your generosity of spirit knows no bounds in having gone into such depth in designing these positive behaviour management programmes and making them available online never more than now where they needed. Mm. Um, and really to know that that's accessible, but with the backup, I think that's where people are really going to find the difference in your courses is that they can buy into the programme, they can self-train at a pace that suits them, but they can go back to the author of the course and they can ask the questions, look for the help and they can get into that support group that you reference. So thank you mm, so and much. And the coaching as well. Yeah. And the coaching and continue to do what you're doing because you're an absolutely amazing individual. Thank you, thank you so much for joining <laughs> me today. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's been pleasure. a real pleasure, Sila. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you guys and gals. That's it for this week. Please tune in every week to Whole and One with Sheila on Voice America's Empowerment Channel. Listen out for your story in ours. You know, you can't rewrite the beginning of your story, but you can tune in any time to what's going on in your world. And if you choose to, you can begin right now to script a totally different ending. 
You've got this. Thank you again for joining us for Whole in One. Please join your host, Sheila E. Hirine, for another edition of this amazing program next Wednesday at 12 noon U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Until we meet again, remember no matter the question, love is the answer. You've got this.